We're supported by Panacea Financial, digital banking built for doctors by doctors. At Panacea Financial, you can have your own free personal banker and a support team that works around the clock just like you do. Open your free checking account today at panaceafinancial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonabank, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Where well, hello, Matt. Uh, Paul is not here, but Stuart is just thinking of Paul mm-hmm. and his Kermit the Frog voice as as he Kermit describes it himself. Here. On tonight's episode, we are talking about MGUS with the great Dr. Jorge Castillo. And uh, as a reminder to the audience, this episode will be available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health. You can get that at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Stuart, since Paul's not here... Can you please tell the audience, what is it that we do on this show? Sure, Matt. So we frequently have existential crises where we try to uh, bring you information uh, from the land of internal medicine. We use uh, expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Hopefully you glean something of use from these episodes. I I think it's almost impossible for them not to glean something useful from tonight's episode, unless they don't work in healthcare, in which case, maybe, maybe not, but still, it would be very interesting for them. Nora, can you please tell them about our wonderful guest? Actually, I don't know that we introduced you yet. The great Dr. Nora Plout Toronto. Nora, a fantastic middle name. You're a fantastic medical resident. Please tell the audience about our guest. My thanks. That was such a flattering inter- introduction. Um, got a shout out to my German roots with that plout. Um, but we have a really wonderful conversation with our guest, Dr. Jorge Castillo, tonight. Jorge Castillo was born in Peru, received his medical degree in Mexico City, and then completed his internal medicine and hematology and oncology training at the University of Massachusetts and Brown University, respectively. He is now an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and serves as the clinical director of the Bing Center for Waldenstrom Macroglobulinemia at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Today, he actually teaches us about Waldenstrom's and more. He specifically teaches us how to follow up on that SPEP that's always still pending at discharge and ends up in your inbox somehow, when to think about how to order one in the first place, and how to think through the difference among the paraproteinemias from MGUS to myeloma to Waldenstrom's. Without further ado, let's get to it. Jorge, thank you for joining us. We're very excited to have you on the show. And the audience is dying to hear your one-liner and something about yourself, something you do outside of medicine. All right. So uh, what can I say? I'm 46. Um, um, I'm happily married to one woman, and I will be married to that woman for the rest of my life. I do believe so. (laughs) I'm a a father of three. And if I were not a doctor, I think I would be probably a chef. I'm Peruvian. I was born in Peru and, you know, Peruvian men, if there's anything we can do, is cook. So, you know, that, that is my second passion after, after medicine, I would say. 
So uh, do you have a favorite book that you think that every physician should read? So um, I have two books that I think are are, are important. Uh, One of them is Microbe Hunters. Um, uh, one, one of a, a very good friend of mine who you know was was my mentor, one of my earliest mentors, actually gave that book as a you know gift to me. I, I enjoyed that book, that book greatly, and that really piques your interest to become a researcher. More recently, I think um, the, the 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 history of cancer, the the emperor of all maladies. I think that was that is a must for any oncologist in this country. I would say is a it's an amazingly well-written book, very entertaining, with lots of very important history in that book. So I think those those two would be very high up on my list. Yeah, I actually really like The Emperor of uh, All Melodies. It's very easy to read and just interesting. Yeah. So can you tell us about a favorite failure you've had and what you learned from it? Failure? I'm all success. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's really hard to pinpoint a specific failure. All I can tell you is probably that my entire career has been chiseled by failure. And I think that is the only way in which you can succeed, right? I mean, you keep trying and then you keep getting uh, grants, proposals rejected, you keep uh, getting manuscripts rejected, you keep... And, and that's the only way to move, to move around. You, you run a clinical trial and it doesn't work the way you would like it. And then you have to still create a report of a negative study and put your name in it, you know, and, 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 and put there the, the evidence that you created in some way. So, yeah, my, my successful career has been chiseled by failure. Let's put it that way. Before we get to the show, I wanted to ask you, what is your, what is your favorite advice that you've received along the way as a learner or when you were in training? Um, I think a couple of them. Uh, I think one of them would be it takes a village. Really, you cannot do things just by yourself. You, you need to have, um, you know, before we used to think that we need a mentor. I think we need a series of mentors. You know, we need a network of mentors who will basically tell you what are you doing well and, and the most important ones who will tell you what are you doing wrong or what are you doing suboptimally. And and I think that that context for specifically for, for academic medicine i think it's very important to understand that perspective the other concept is to be at the right place at the right time you know and again the same way failure shapes um, the career sometimes also lucky strikes shape the career you know up to some degree and i can tell you exactly you know when your luck changes specifically uh, from the perspective of being a, a foreign medical graduate right and in trying to get into into a higher degree of training, into a, a bigger place, into a better place, it's, it's always a struggle. And uh, I think, you know, if, we have, if, I, if I wouldn't have been at the right place at the right time, that might not have happened. But it, it also depends on how you want to look at it. Because at the end of your career, you can say, well, you know, this is where I was lucky. You know, at that moment, you were not, you didn't know that, right? I mean, you just took that decision or make that decision and then something happened to you. And then also makes you kind of think of all the things that you did not do and, and where would have you have ended up if you have taken the, just a different path on that specific sense. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating you know, sequence of events that takes you to where you want to be. 
Nora, uh, before we get on, since you're not on the show all all the time and you you give some great picks of the week, did you want to, before we move on to the case and start to talk uh, with Jorge about his expertise, did you want to give a pick of the week? Yeah. So um, my pick of the week this week is a new podcast called Her Story. Um, it actually, it ties really well into what uh, Jorge was speaking about, about having a series of mentors. It's a podcast that was created by women for women that explores the intersection of women, medicine, leadership, and healthcare. And it features uh, guests kind of across the board um, from policymakers to CEOs of big healthcare um, uh, corporations and insurance uh companies to uh, the former CDC director, and it's kind of only getting started. So I I highly encourage listeners to jump in and get some pearls there about how to find the right mentors for them. Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking, a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. No one should borrow money more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, physicians and physicians in training can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. It has an interest rate that is less than half the average credit card, no cosigner requirement, and a fully digital application. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. In addition, physicians in training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Go to panaceafinancial.com today to learn more. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonobank and member FDIC. All right, Nora, do you want to read the first case? Sure. Um, so our first case is case about Mr. Michael Loma. He's 67 and he comes to see you in primary care for follow-up after a one-day hospital admission for community-acquired pneumonia. He's feeling much better now without cough or shortness of breath, finished his antibiotics, um, and was noted to be a little anemic during his admission, has a history of diabetes as well, and has had CKD that's worsening the last year or two. States that over the last six to 12 months, he's been a little bit more fatigued and he's been having more of his arthritis act up. But otherwise, he's actually feeling basically at his baseline. However, during this admission, he did have an SPEP sent, which has just resulted to your inbox. So he asks you what this test is and what it was sent for. So I'll, I'll throw that question over to you, Jorge. Um, kind of how would you explain what an SPEP is to a patient and what information do you look for in using it? Good. So that's a, a very important question because that really gives us an idea of what exactly might be happening with these patients. So the way I'm, I'm looking at this is, you know, and I explained it to the patient is uh, your body has many different ways of, you know, fighting infections. And one of them is creating antibodies. So you have different types of antibodies. And um, the way I, w- I would look at it is, you know, these are weapons that your body uses to fight infections. So if you were infected, right, uh, then you bring all your weapons and you bring all your friends with all the weapons. So you know, all the antibodies would be elevated. But in the, in the situation in which we have an aspect that is abnormal, you know, then we have a specific antibody that is higher than the rest. 
you know, and so that is not a natural state because either you are not infected and all your antibodies should be within normal limits, or you are have an infectious process and all your antibodies should be elevated, you know, across the board. So the fact that only one of them is elevated and the other ones are not, then that really gives us an idea that just something is not right there. And what I say is, yeah, different populations of cells in the patient's bodies that are producing these antibodies, and the fact that it's one of them is elevated, that means that there is a population of cells that have, you know, essentially getting out of control and is producing these, these antibodies. Now, the whole other discussion to have is if that increase in those antibodies is a benign increase or a malignant increase, and that, that, that takes to a completely different discussion, but at least the, the initial idea is how to express this abnormal SPIP and what it means in, in very lay terms. That's a great way to explain it, because this is such a common thing. Um, Stuart, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. Where, Too frequently. Because yeah, like every internal medicine patient has like a slightly abnormal hemoglobin. In fact, when I'm looking at hemoglobins, oh, certainly on hospitalized patients, yeah. but even in my primary care, like chronically ill population, most people have some degree of anemia, it seems. So it's, and so, it's weird to see a normal hemoglobin. Sure. <laughs> that's like a red flag. I know. Like, wait a minute, what's <laughs> happening? What am I missing here? <laughs> Does this person have sleep apnea and it's like pseudo normal? Uh, anyway, so I think, I think it's to, there's a lot of terms to define here. When we check a hepatic function panel, we got a total protein. Jorge, can you talk a little bit about the the two main like fractions of protein? Because this is going to relate to when we talk about the specifics of the the SPEP. Yeah, no, absolutely. So <clears throat> I would say that there are multiple different types of proteins, but the two main types of proteins are albumin and globulin. So I think in general terms, I can talk to patients and say, well, the albumin is the nutrition protein, right? while the globulin is more like the antibody protein. So in, in a patient who's normal, then you should have a specific level of albumin, a specific level of globulin, and that ratio, their coefficient should be within normal limits. But, uh, usually the globulins are lower than the albumin, and that's the typical situation. Now in patients with any type of monoclonal paraprotein problem, either myeloma, amyloidosis, or Waldenstrom's, for example, then the globulin level goes up. Now, in some patients, the albumin hasn't changed yet, but in some other patients, when the disease advances a bit more, then the albumin also decreases. So as you can understand, the ratio gets inverted, right? And the globulin gets to be higher and the albumin gets to be a little bit lower. So that would be one potential, very early, easy way to understand that something is just not right with the production of antibodies. Interestingly enough, for example, a patient of mine that I saw just today, she said, well, my doctor saw my my, my protein levels and, and you know, she told me that I need to start taking, you know, protein shakes to increase to increase my albumin. I'm like, hmm. so this is the disease that is driving that, you know. I don't think protein shakes are going to fix this, this problem. I think we need to treat you for your disease, and that's probably what's going to fix the problem. You know, but, but just to give an idea how some other people look at this, you know, with, with good heart, right? But, but yeah. from a different perspective. To call the audience back to an episode of the things we do for no reason. Uh, Dr. Lenny Feldman was talking to us about albumin and how it's like a negative acute phase reactant. So if someone's like inflamed or acute, you know, ill with something, often the albumin will start to drop. And no matter how much you feed that person, often, unless you reverse what's causing the low albumin, you, you can't, 
get the albumin to go up. So that's, yeah, albumin, I, I'm sure we could talk for hours about that. So what are the, let's say for Miss uh, Mr. Mike Aloma, what sort of things might we get on this, this SPEP that was sent for him and what, what might that report read like? Yeah, so, so the, the electrophoresis curve is actually uh, a curve, you know, made out of five smaller curves, you know. And um, the, the big one, as we were talking about, is albumin. That's the big one. That's the one that is going to be the, the highest peak at the beginning. And then you have other peaks. You have the alpha uh, one peak, the alpha two peak, the beta peak, and then the gamma peak. And, you know, the, we know what the distribution of that electrophoretic distribution is uh, in, in, in normal scenarios. So when we think about um, a monoclonal process, a monoclonal gammopathy issue, you know, typically we see a spike on the gamma region. That's the typical presentation. Uh, but the reason we call it typical is because most of the times in myeloma and other conditions, the most common protein that is affected is IgG. And IgG likes to kind of travel into the gamma peak, and that's why we see it there. Having said that, when we see other conditions that carry more like an IgM paraprotein, like Waldenstrom, for example, in, or IgA, that some myeloma can also have IgA, then those can also, you know, travel into the gamma peak, but sometimes they, they travel into the beta peak. So if you don't have a pathologist that, you know, is, is very interested on in how the curves actually present, they could potentially tell you that there's no M spike when the M spike is actually hitting into, in, into the beta area. Very rarely, you know, we see these proteins kind of giving you false peaks into the alpha region, but has also been described much more rarely. Is there any good way of trying to reduce the risk of that happening um, besides just trusting your pathologist? Like, is there a specific threshold of the beta peak above which you would say, hmm, maybe that's actually beta plus an M spike? Unfortunately, if you are not looking at the, at the curves yourself, and you don't have some type of training, that's, that's going to be very difficult. You're going to have to trust on your, on your pathologist up to some degree. And at the end of the day, it's, it's the shape. It's the shape of it. You know, at the end of the day, what, what is going to give you all that? Now, the issue with, with uh, SPEPs, they're very, they're very useful. I'm not trying to minimize the use, uh, how useful they are. But they are, up to some degree, semi-quantitative. You know, there's a lot of operator-driven you know, evaluations, mainly when you have these microscopic, very tiny M-spikes. You know, and I mean, I wish there was a little bit of a better test. I think we could come up with a better test, but it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I think the better test could be an immunofixation test. You know, the immunofixation is then what that gives you which type of monoclonal protein this is. You know, and, and you can have a gamma peak, but you still do not know if it's an IgG, kappa, kappa, or IgG kappa mixed, or kappa alone, or lambda alone, or IgA. So running this immunofixation in addition to the protein electrophoresis, that, that actually helps you understand which subtype of paraprotein that we're talking about. And that can refine a little bit better the quantification of the paraprotein in that specific regard. But all these techniques are still semi-quantitative. So I want to bring this, uh, I want to try to summarize a little bit of what you're saying here and then bring it back to our case. And we can, we can use Mr. Aloma as the example. So we're sort of quantifying if uh, whether we're saying whether or not there's an M spike with the SPEP and it's semi-quantitative and then the immunofixation, that's more of a qualitative test that tells us like which type, if there is an M spike, which type of protein 
is present there. And that could tell us if it's like IgG or IgM, IgA, uh, or one of the, like the kappa, kappa or lambdas at two, I think, right? Okay. So with Mr. Aloma, his test we, uh, was abnormal. He has an M spike in the gamma region. They tell us there's protein of 2.1 grams per deciliter. Um, it's kappa free light chain restricted. And um, I, don't, I don't understand exactly what that means. Uh, so, Neither do I. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm here <laughs> so for. So this is where, you know, I'm always like fingers crossed when I open an SPEP that it says no M spike detected. And then I can <laughs> just like high five everyone around me. Yeah. So tell us, what do we do with this? Yeah. So <clears throat> um, these monoclonal processes, you know, they, these plasma cells, actually, let's talk about plasma cells because these are the ones that produce immunoglobulins. And, and obviously there's a clone of plasma cells that, is, that are overproducing this protein. So these monoclonal plasma cells will produce only one type of protein, right? And, and in most scenarios, I would say they secrete a heavy chain, could be an IgG, IgA, or IgM, and that is almost always paired with a free light chain. But because it's a clone, it, will not, it cannot produce two or three different heavy chains or, two, or, the different, or the two different free light chains. So typically you have an IgG kappa clone, and the myeloma will be an IgG kappa myeloma. With Waldenstrom's, you have an IgM, and it will be either kappa or lambda. So you will have an IgM lambda Waldenstrom's, right? So that's the typical way it goes. You have a heavy chain, the light chain on the side, and that's what the, these malignant cells produce. Having said that, very rarely, these malignant cells can produce only the free light chain protein. In that scenario, will be the, the myeloma will be kappa only malignant myeloma. Um, in some scenarios, they have only the heavy chain without the free light chain, you know? So that, that, that's a little bit more rare. Typically, it's a heavy light chain, heavy chain, and your light chain on the side. Right. And the, the, when you mentioned it was semi-quantitative, the SPEP, they're telling us there's protein of 2.1 grams per deciliter. That's the quantitative part of it? Exactly. So that's, that result on itself is semi-quantitative because you need to assume that there's, a, there's an area under the curve that is normal, for everybody, which is a polyclonal mm -hmm. globulin, and then you have the, the monoclonal spike on top. So you basically have to assume what the what the baseline is for you to be able to estimate the spike. Yeah. So even though they're giving you a 2.1 from the spike, you know, you're still missing a little bit down there that you know you're assuming is polyclonal just because of the shape of it. And and that's why in those scenarios, sometimes we tend to um, you know, ask for actual serum immunoglobulin levels just to get a sense of what the actual level is. That's a, a fully quantitative process. What you lose by doing serum, serum immunoglobulins is that you are measuring the entire scenario. So you don't know how much is polyclonal or monoclonal. You just know that it's beyond normal or higher than normal. So I would say both values kind of complement each other, right? They are trying to measure the same thing. They do it up to some degree, but none of them is perfect. Yeah. So with polyclonal, if we were to, if someone had like a rip-roaring pneumonia and we were to, for some reason, get an SPEP right in the midst of that, we might just see all the immunoglobulin levels, like at the alpha, the beta, the gamma region, it would all be up. But in a, if someone has some sort of a uh, monoclonal thing going on, they're going to have more of like a, a, an actual sharp peak. Like I saw church spire as the, uh, at referenced. And so in this case, they looked at it and, and he had a, a distinct peak. 
with, I, I know there's some cutoffs for these values as well. Oh, Stuart, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I, I, I think you said the, that you, you would have immunoglobulin elevations in alpha, beta, and gamma region, but that's those what I'm are different. For polyclonal, for polyclonal, if it was like a polyclonal right, right. process. But just but maybe just bear in mind that most of the alpha and beta elevations are, are not uh, immunoglobulin. That's like your acute phase reactants, your transferrin, ferritin, stuff like that. Okay. One way of, of looking at this is you can just put your hands like this. And this is essentially how the, the SPIP looks like. This is your albumin. This is your alpha 1, alpha 2, beta, and this is your gamma. So the gamma is typically like this, kind of a kind of a mount this way, kind of a little wide. And that's when you have, for example, hepatitis, HIV, or lupus, or any acute infection, then you will have a wide distribution of the of the gamma globulins, which is different than when you actually have a monoclonal process in which, you know, the curve will be the same, but then you have like a peak on top of it. As you say, the, the, the charge spire, you know, so the, the shape of it is is very distinctive. And, you know, that's what, that would be one way of, of understanding what the shape of this is. This is kind of... Right. So for the audience at home, if you take your right... If you're driving, please don't do this. But uh, if you take your right hand in front of you and hold it up in front of your face and uh, put out your, your pinky finger and your thumb and, put, and, put the th- and bend down the three fingers <laughs> in the middle, then your pinky is the albumin. And then you have alpha one, alpha two beta, they're just smaller humps. And the gamma is your thumb, which is kind of pointed out to the side in like a nice round mound there. That There you go. That's a good description. All right. And hopefully we didn't cause any car crashes with that. But I think that's pretty, (laughs) I think that's pretty cool. That's, I think that was worth mentioning uh, to the, so the audience can try to look at that because that, I think I will remember that. All right. So what do we have? What do we tell Mr. Aloma? He's got, he has an M spike. He's freaking out. He's got, he sees he has 2.1 grams of protein. It's kappa free light chain restricted. Tell, how, how would you explain that to him? Yeah. I think the next uh, step would be to say, well, you know, there is a monoclonal process in there and we acknowledge that it's not normal, right? So something is going on there. So uh, the way I would say is, um, we need to know if this is a benign uh, monoclonal process or an, a malignant monoclonal process. Because there's a benign condition called monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS, M-G-U-S. And if we go around, you know, just taking blood randomly from people, you will see that the rate of uh, MGUS in the country is anywhere between 3 and 5%, um, so, which is very prevalent if you think about it. Um, having said that, that changes uh, with age. So if you take all the 50-year-olds, the, the rate will be probably about 1%. If you take the, you know, go up to 3% with 60s, 5% with the 70s, and over kind of close to 10% with the, in, the, in the 80s. So there's something about aging that is related to the monoclonal gammopathy of no significance. So there is a chance that this patient might have an actual MGUS. The things against this being MGUS is the, the, the situation of the patient is somewhat anemic. And you can make a case that maybe the anemia is driven by this process. If the patient will be hypoalbuminemic, that will even further, you know, my concern that this patient might have a malignant process. Um, so therefore, how do we differentiate a malignant process from a benign process? And that's where, you know, additional testing, including a bone marrow biopsy, could be of help to understand a little bit better what's going on with this patient. 
So I, I've got the dumb primary care physician question. At what point do I not look stupid consulting hematology for this patient? <laughs> At what point am I, am I okay to hit that button? Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, if you have an IgG, the, the issue is the most common subtype of MGAS is IgG. So you have an IgG MGAS in which the patient is completely asymptomatic, in which the patient um, has you know, the, the, the blood counts are completely normal, calcium is normal, kidney function is normal, everything is fine. And, and your, your IgG is barely elevated with an M spike, maybe, you know, less than 0.5. I mean, those patients are most likely to be benign. Now, if, you're, if your M spike is over 1.5 and there's a little bit of anemia, a little bit of hypovolemia, a little bit of a hypercalcemia, then those are the patients that classically you will need to refer for evaluation. Nowadays, uh, at least in bigger institutions, there are a number of different programs in which they are following these patients uh, with MGAS for other you know, uh, research and things of that nature. So I think if you find an MGAS or a monoclonal gammopathy on a patient, I think it's safe to refer to a hematologist, you know, just just the, the, the sole presence of the monoclonal gammopathy, uh, I think you're better off, you know, making sure that the patient is, is not a mal doesn't have a malignancy or doesn't have a benign process. Why? Because can you be completely sure that with an M spike of 0 0.5, the patient does not have a smoldering myeloma? You cannot be sure of that, you know? Can you be sure that because the IgM is not that high, that the patient doesn't have Waldenstrom's? You cannot completely say that even if the patient is not anemic. So you're almost always safe to once you find an M spike, to 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 send to send the patient to a hematologist. I think we should define asymptomatic. Yeah. So I mean, when we think about myeloma, for example, you know, I think we all know about the CRAB criteria. You know, the hypercalcemia, renal disease, anemia, bone disease. So if the patient has any of those, the patient will be considered symptomatic. If the patient doesn't have any of that, then the patient could be considered asymptomatic. With Waldenstrom's, it's a little bit more complicated because there's not such a well-defined uh, clinical criteria. But anemia still is one of the big issues with those patients. So we do have neuropathy, hyperviscosity. It's a completely different set of, of symptoms. Um, the anemia is the only thing that myeloma and Waldenstrom share, but everything else, you know, kidney disease is very rare in Waldenstrom's. Bone disease is very rare in Waldenstrom's. So it's a little bit of a, they're different diseases. They do have the gammopathy in common, but really they are clinically very different conditions. So if a patient with Waldenstrom doesn't have neuropathy, it's not anemic, you know, there's no evidence of hyperviscosity, we can go talk about the, the symptoms in a minute, you know, then, then those patients could be considered asymptomatic. Having said all that, I think um, the best person to assess the presence or absence of symptoms in somebody with, my, with myeloma or suspected Waldenstrom's is the hematologist, you know. Um, uh, and, and trust me, some hematologists sometimes have that concept a little bit confused as well. So don't feel uh -huh. bad about it. Uh, so, you know, I think in that, in that sense, sending the patient to be seen by a specialist is, is reasonable, even if you felt the patient is actually asymptomatic. And if you are in, if you don't know if the patient is symptomatic or not, then more reason to actually send the patient to be seen. Are there any supplementary lab tests or procedures that you would want done before you got that referral? Uh, I think um, what we typically tend to, you know, just to get a, a good idea of what's going on, I think, uh, you know, getting the SPP immunofixation key, 
right? I think uh, getting a complete blood count and metabolic panel just to get at the kidney and the, and the, uh, the calcium level, right? Specifically in myeloma patients, the actual immunoglobulin levels, those are, those are really important because if you have an IgM of 1,000 in Waldenstrom, for example, you have an IgM of 5,000, that has different implications in terms of what you might expect the patient to be, to be experiencing or not. If you want to be fancy, you can send some free light chain, you know, free light chain levels, cap and lambda, and that can also give you an additional idea of what might be going on. But I, I think those are the, the tests that we typically tend to order when we want to see what's going on with the patient. And obviously, depending on what we see, then we can order, you know, additional testing. We can order urine tests if we think the kidneys are suffering on the patient, additional testing for the, for, for the hypercalcemia. I think in a patient present with hypercalcemia, doing a complete workup for hypercalcemia is very reasonable. You know, running your PTH, your intact PTH, and your ionized calcium, running your TSH or vitamin A, or whatever you think might be going on, evaluating the patient is getting vitamin D, you know, externally or maybe overdoing that. You know, I think so. I think you doing your anemia workup in, in the first place, making sure the patient is not iron deficient or vitamin B12 deficient, folic acid deficiency, things like that. You know, in that way, you, you cover all your bases. And in that way, when the patient comes to see the hematologist, we don't have to be running all that, all the same workup all over again, you know, just, uh, yeah. just to make things a little bit easier. So Mr. Aloma, he has, he has evidence of kidney disease and it's been progressing. He has some mild anemia. So he seems to have, uh, he, and he has an M spike. So we're concerned for myeloma, regardless of, you know, how high the protein is here. And would you is would you also add to the list for him the skeletal survey and and do you do you get all the bones or do you just get certain certain spots that are more high yield? Yeah, so I think when we think about uh, what can be done from the internal medicine perspective, I think a skeletal survey is a reasonable way to move forward, um, and that implies X-rays of um, the skull and the spine and the ribs and the hips and the long bones. Having said all that. Once the patient comes to see the hematologist, then we tend to do more um, specialized imaging testing, Spe- specifically because the skeletal survey does suffer from sensitivity. So it's very specific, right? If you find a lesion, then you know you know something is wrong. But but if you don't find a lesion, sometimes the patients might have lesions that are not detectable by skeletal survey. And in that scenario, we tend to do other testing. We tend to do MRIs, we tend to do PET scans and all the type of stuff. But I mean, that will be more in the realm of the hematologist, oncologist type of work. I think uh, getting a, a baseline skeletal survey makes a lot of sense. So we're getting a, a, a skeletal survey for him. And uh, and then I want to I want to add on two other things that let's say that we sent. So we I think we're going to send a, a urine protein electrophoresis also with immunofixation and that that needs to be a 24 hour from my understanding or can we do that as just like a spot spot urine so the recommendation would be in somebody with kidney abnormalities like this patient would be to actually do a 24 hour uh and and, and you have to send a couple of things uh so you accumulate your your 24 hour urine and then you send it for protein quantification just to see if there's any uh you know excess albuminuria there that can sometimes give you an idea that maybe some amyloidosis coming going on in the in the kidney and things like that and also your, um, you know, electrophoresis to understand if there's any Benz Jones protein in it, right? Um, in myeloma, that's very important because um, kidney disease in myeloma usually associates with these Benz Jones proteins. 
you know, or amyloidosis. So by doing this 24-hour urine with albumin and, and the electrophoresis, you can actually figure that out a little bit. You know, if your albumin looks normal and there's no Benz Jones protein, then you can say, well, maybe it's not the myeloma that is driving the kidney dysfunction and maybe the diabetes, right? In that way, you can, it, can, it can help you out. Now, with diabetes, you can also see some uh, albuminuria, right? Um, but it will be not as marked as the one that we see typically with, with, with amyloidosis. And if you could remind us what a Benz-Jones protein actually is, yeah, so uh, the Benz-Jones protein is essentially this um, excess um, gamma globulin that we, that we tend to see in the urine, and specifically it tends to be monoclonal because of, of these abnormalities. Now, you need to be careful with that because um, if you do urine electrophoresis on all the patients with gammopathies, they're all going to have a little bit of monoclonal protein coming out in the urine. Right, so so you know you have to take it in the in the right clinical context. If you have somebody with myeloma and kidney dysfunction, then I think uh, you know that's a good indication that something, you know, that the, the the lie chain or the electrophoresis there, the the excess of protein is the one that is driving the the disease in the kidney. One more question about the UPEP, the urine uh, electrophoresis. Would you always get it in a patient? in whom you're getting an SPEP, or do you reserve it for a kind of second-line uh, set of diagnostic tests in patients with kidney disease, for example? Yeah, so I typically do not get it uh, for diagnostic purposes, you know, because I think the SPEP and the free light chains are, or the immunoglobulin immunofixation is, is sensitive enough to actually make a good diagnosis and understanding what's going on. But... Um, you know, but if somebody has kidney disease, then for sure I, I tend to obtain the electrophoresis in the urine of those patients. Or if I suspect amyloidosis, that's another reason to do that. Okay, Jorge, I, I think this is interesting to talk about, and we've talked about this with our, our great friend, uh, kidney boy, Joel Toff, before, where the urine dipstick tests for albumin, but it, it doesn't necessarily pick up if there's protein like in their urine, like light chains. Or, and so... The urine protein, when you do a urine protein electrophoresis for 24-hour urine, or if you do like a spot urine protein creatinine ratio, that's, you could pick up somebody that has like extra globulins in their urine, um, whereas you might miss that if you just did the dipstick because, because of the albumin fraction. And uh, you mentioned the, the Bench-Jones protein. So that would be on the you would know that from the, uh, there would be an M spike in the urine, just like there was in the serum. And then when you do the qualitative part of it with the immunofixation, it would tell you that those were, would they be the light chain portion or could it just be any, the heavy chain or light chain or both? So typically is, um, most commonly is the free light chain components because okay. those, those are smaller, mole, you know, smaller molecules and they, they can be filtered out easier, you know, by the glomeruli. But in some scenarios when the damage is much more pronounced, that you can actually have the entire, you know, heavy chain and the light chain in the urine as well. All right. And I think that sets up Stuart. Stuart, you had another question? I just wanted to ask just overall whether or not we need to order the free light chain ratio at this point and how we would interpret that. 
Yeah, because I, I think how to interpret it too, because a lot of the times I'm seeing people order like yeah. SPEP, UPEP, IFE, free light chains, and then that gets dumped to me and I'm like- And you're like, what do I do with <laughs> what this? The- <laughs> I mean, it's 1.75. I mean, do do I do something with that? I don't know. It's it's red. That's all this, I know. This is literally why we wanted to do this show because- I know. <laughs> it's just the slab. Just the slab. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean- um, I, I think in the right context, having a free light chain is important. If you have, again, we talked about myeloma and how there are different subtypes. So you have the IgGs are the most common, IgA less common, IgM very rare, and you have the free light chain only. Now, if you do the free light chain only, uh, you have a, a free light chain only myeloma, your SPIP might actually be normal. You know, you might not pick that peak in the electrophoresis. And that could be a little tricky if you think about it. You know, you need to have the heavy chain to be able to see that. If you have only free light chains, you might, you might, it might be, might be missed. And that's why, you know, just to be on the safer side, a free light chain is added to the whole process to understand that a little bit better. Now, in myeloma, we looked at all these proteins as a group. And then when we treat the patient, we actually follow these levels of proteins to assess the response. And that's what I think is much more important. The free light chains are more important because the IgG is going to drop, it's going to go within normal limits, and the, that M spike is going to disappear. And we want to think, oh, the patient might be in a complete response. That's where the free light chain essay really comes into place. And then it was, it was abnormal before and still abnormal, even though the, the, the heavy chain has normalized, then the disease has not really gone. There's not a complete, not, it's not stringent complete response. So for response assessment, the free light chains are, are very, very important in that specific sense. But for us to be able to quantify that, we need to have a baseline free light chain, you know? So, so that's the value of having a, a, an initial free light chain. So not, not, not much more for what you can do with that because you can make, uh, you know, you can suspect somebody has myeloma without actually having the free light chains. Uh, but, you know, in the case in which you don't have a strong heavy chain mark, then the free light chains can give you the answer. And you, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to actually see that sometimes IgG, IgM, everything looks normal, your enzyme looks fine, and you look at the free light chains and the kappa is like 5,000, right? And, and, and then you're like, oh, I'm glad I ordered the free light chains. <laughs> and uh, just one more question about that. Is it the absolute value that you look at or is it the ratio of kappa to lambda or... Yeah, so, so that's getting, you know, a little bit more, more technical, but I mean, I think it's important as well because, um, you know, if, if you, you want to see the, the absolute number in comparison with the ratio, right? Because you can have a normal kappa and a low lambda and an abnormal ratio. That is not problematic because your kappa is normal and your lambda is below normal. That, that is not an issue. So you need, you need to look at the absolute number first to make sure that it's abnormally high right? Either the kappa or the lambda. And then your ratio actually does make sense. Now, this becomes a little trickier when you have kidney dysfunction, for example. In kidney dysfunction, both your kappa and your lambda will be actually elevated just because of the kidney dysfunction itself. And that can actually mess up your free light chain evaluation. So again, everything in the right context. And uh, whenever in doubt, just curbside hematology. Yeah. We're you, clearly we're capable of doing that. That's what the whole show is based on. <laughs> Jorge, this this has been a great overview of testing, and I know we're like hammering you with questions. I think it's just because this cause causes all of us a lot of anxiety. But it sounds like 
the good news is CBC, BMP, uh, the, the SPEP and the immunofixation, a lot of the times that, that will get us there. Uh, and, and we might as a second round of testing do like quantitative, like IgG levels, like the total levels, maybe free light chains. And then depending on what we find, if there's hypercalcemia, that might send us to that workup. We might do the skeletal survey, uh, before we send them to you, but hematology is going to really help us try to figure out, uh, try to figure out what this is. And you also gave us a bunch of the symptoms to look for, which were like cytopenias, the calcium, the kidneys, and uh, those those were the main ones. So uh, I think this is a great overview and framework for the audience. So so I guess that leads into the next uh, big question that we have, um, which is how you think about the different disease processes that are actually causing these abnormalities on the SPAP. And do you have a, a general diagnostic framework kind of uh, using clinical clues or SPAP to break it down into a nice, organized, logical, step-by-step approach? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... You know, when we think about monoclonal gammopathies in general terms, um, there, there are there are three big you know diseases that we tend to treat. I think the big one, the one that is most common, is myeloma. Uh, then we have two more rare conditions. One of them is Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which is really a lymphoma, and then we have the other is amyloidosis, which is a, a truly a plasma cell dyscrasia as well. There are other much more rare conditions that you know I don't think we. We have all the time to talk about all those more rare situations. So I think uh, I think we'd like to start by saying that all these conditions have a pre-malignant scenario called MGAS. And um, when and, and depending of the the heavy chain of the MGAS can actually give us the potential you know scenario in which what this MGAS might actually progress into. If you have an IgG or an IgA MGAS. Those patients are more likely if they progress or, you know, to progress into myeloma, for example. While the IgM MGAS, they tend to progress more likely into Waldenstrom's and much less likely into myeloma. The free light chain MGASs, kappa or lambda, they can basically turn into myeloma, but they can also turn into amyloidosis as well. So all these plasma cell discretions have these pre-malignant MGAS conditions. Now, if somebody has an MGAS diagnosed with MGAS, the risk of turning into myeloma is about 1% per year. And um, uh, if you have an IgM MGAS, that is actually a 1.5% per year of progressing into Waldenstrom's. So the way I tell my patients is, well, you have this MGAS uh, condition, IgG, for example, is a 1% per year risk. So that means you need to be alive for 100 years from today. <laughs> To actually have a hundred percent risk of trying, of progressing into myeloma, <laughs> and for Waldenstrom's, I use seventy years, which is you know, the appropriate calculation. So I think that's a way you can think about you know how these conditions have these premalignant scenarios, and you know then then these patients need to be monitored just in case they, they actually progress to a malignancy. Now um, the patients who are symptomatic, typically diagnosed with with myeloma, I think I mentioned the CRAB criteria, right? These patients have this hypercalcemia. The renal dysfunction, which is typically associated with light chain cast nephropathy, but it could be many other reasons. The anemia tends to be normochromic, normocytic. Uh, and then you have the bone lesions that are typically lytic lesions, and they can be seen in skeletal service and other imaging like MRIs and things of that nature. So that is the classic clinical picture of a patient with myeloma. 
You know, that's a classic picture that comes in, in, in the questions of, of, in the boards, right? And, and so in, this, in those patients, you get the, the different levels. You understand that might be an IgG kappa and things of that nature. And then um, what, what do you do with a patient like that? I mean, obviously, you need to treat those patients because the mortality in, in a patient with myeloma tends to be myeloma. You know, about 80% of the patients with myeloma die of myeloma. And also the survival of these patients has improved, actually, over the last uh, decade. Um, and I think it's because of the newer treatments that have come along. I mean, uh, there's a lot of research showing that plasma, the plasma cells in myeloma are highly resistant to chemotherapy, highly resistant to chemotherapy. They have a lot of different mechanisms that protect them against chemotherapy. Um, so the non-chemotherapy approaches are, this is what we're using nowadays. You know, we're using immunomodulators, we're using proteasome inhibitors, we're using antibodies, all these, you know, with steroids. And with that, you know, we have, I would say myeloma is one of the conditions in which there have been more FDA approvals in the last decade than, than any other uh, hematologic malignancy for that matter. And that's a lot to say because in lymphoma, we had a lot of developments as well. So, so I think the overall survival of patients have changed in my lifetime, actually in my lifetime as a hematologist. When I was a fellow, the median overall survival of, of myeloma was three years. And that was the median overall survival. The median overall survival now is about eight years on those patients. Doesn't sound like a lot if you are a myeloma patient, obviously. But in, in the whole realm of things, it's a, it's a massive improvement on the patient's survival. You know, now we have about 30 to 40% of patients might be alive for longer than 10 years, which is something that when, when I was training, that was an impossible thing to think about. So and I think the research is important to understand you know, how we can treat those patients. Now, Waldenstrom's is a little bit different. Waldenstrom's is actually a lymphoma. It's a lymphoma, it's a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma in which a component of the disease is a plasma cell discretion. So, but, but the main stem cell of the malignancy is not the plasma cell. So these patients, lymphoplasmacytic lymphomas, tend to have IgM over secretion. You can also see a little bit of IgG and IgA, but that's a topic for a different lecture, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the classic is this IgM secretion. And these patients tend to present different than myeloma presents. I think they share the anemia, as we were saying earlier, but the IgM has its own physical chemical properties on their own, on its own. It's a, it's a, it's a pentamer, it's a larger molecule compared to IgG or compared to IgA. And these patients can present with hyperviscosity. That's a classic, you know, manifestation of a patient with Waldenstrom's nosebleeds, blurred vision because of retinal hemorrhages, headaches. The IgM is typically in the four, five, six thousand levels, milligrams per deciliter. And that, that is, will be one presentation of patients with Waldenstrom's. The other one is neuropathy. You know, about 20% of patients can have this neuropathy, typically sensory, bilateral, Distal, meaning starts on the toes and then progresses proximally very slowly, usually over months to years. You know, um, um, th th these patients can have an anti-MAG antibody in about 50% of the times. They have demyelination in nerve conduction studies. So, and then we have the anemia, which is a classic presentation for these patients. How frequent we see kidney dysfunction because of Waldenstrom's? Two to 3% of the cases. So it's much lower than in myeloma, which is about 40 to 50% of the cases we have kidney problems. How much, how many patients with Waldenstrom have actually lytic lesions in the bones? Less than 1%. Very unlikely. Compared to, to myeloma, in which 30 to 40% of patients will have some lytic lesions at some point. So the management of these conditions are very different. 
finally, I think the, the survival of patients with Waldenstrom's is actually, you know, is better than the patients with myeloma. Number one, the mortality because of Waldenstrom's is probably anywhere between 10 and 20%. So four out of five patients, four out of five patients with Waldenstrom's don't die because of Waldenstrom's. They die of other reasons. Um, and the median survival of these patients is anywhere between around 15 years. So it's easily double in average than, than myeloma is. And the treatments, you know, are, are a little bit similar because we have borrowed a lot of treatments from myeloma. We have borrowed a lot of treatments from 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 lymphoma so we use a little bit more chemotherapy in in these conditions these cells are actually more sensitive to chemotherapy than the plasma cells are but we use some of the treatments for myeloma like protosome inhibitors we use as well we use antibodies and we have a new uh, family of medications called btk inhibitors that are oral agents uh, so the overall survival of patients with Waldenstrom have also increased uh, over the last decade with the newer treatments but the 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 you know, the ground gain is much more substantial for myeloma, as you can understand, even though their, their outcomes are still not as good as, but their ground cover is much better than for Waldenstrom's. We're working on that as well. Now, amyloidosis uh, tends to be, uh, the, I think, the, 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 toughest, the toughest one out of the three. I think the mortality of amyloidosis not only is uh, more pronounced, but also uh, is shorter, you know, uh, mainly when you have cardiac amyloidosis. Amyloidosis is a type of disease that if you find it in, in, in the fat pad biopsy or in, in, in a heart biopsy or in a kidney biopsy, then you know the patient has it. But if you suspect clinically the patient has this disease and you cannot find it, you're still not sure the patient doesn't have it. <laughs> you know? that, That's reassuring. I know. Trust me. Welcome to my life. So um, <laughs> this is the toughest part. You know? So uh, amyloidosis can be suspected in many different situations. I think the classic situation is a patient with nephrotic syndrome. You know, that's the, the classic situation. Now, the kidney damage for amyloidosis is different than the kidney damage for myeloma, right? The kidney da damage in amyloidosis is glomeruli dis disruption, and that basically creates, you know, a patient being able to shed a lot of these albumin out of in the kidney, in, in, the, in, the, in the urine. The light chain cast nephropathy that we see in myeloma is a little bit different. That affects the creatinine function, while in, in the nephrotic syndrome, that's, the creatinine function is not always affected, right? So there are two different ways in which the diseases can present. And, and sometimes the urine findings can tell you, or at least, you know, tell you, well, maybe this is an amyloidosis versus a myeloma in that specific scenario. The other scenario will be uh, neuropathy can also happen in amyloidosis, but it's different than in Waldenstrom's. This is an axonal neuropathy, muscle wasting, more rapidly produced, progressing, um, um, you know, not only the sensation issue, but also pain sometimes, uh, weakness, right? And sometimes hands and feet are affected at the same time, which is not precisely length dependent like Waldenstrom says. And the other one is patients with cardiomyopathy. You know, if you have a high uh, restrictive cardiomyopathy, cardiomegaly, macroglossia, that's a classic. Uh, you know, associated with, with amyloidosis, factor 10 deficiency with the raccoon eyes and other bleeding problems. So any, any of those clinical, you know, aspects or, or features of the patient can make you suspect that somebody has amyloidosis. And for amyloidosis, you need to get the tissue, right? If you suspect the patient has it, an abdominal fat pad biopsy or a transrectal biopsy can sometimes help you. The problem here is that there are multiple types. There are multiple types of amyloidosis, you know, 
the one that we're talking about right now is the light chain amyloidosis, the one that is related to a plasma cell discretion, but we have so many other types. We have the AA amyloidosis, we have the TTR amyloidosis, some of them are um, acquired, some of them are uh, hereditary. So the fact that you take a piece of tissue and you look under the microscope and you find the Congo ray, right? That doesn't really tell you it's a light chain amyloidosis. You still need to send that piece of tissue to the mass spectrometry, you know, at different institutions in the United States that can run that. And then you can actually make a diagnosis of LA amyloidosis. Just to give you an example, a patient came, come, was sent to my clinic with Waldenstrom's and cardiac amyloidosis to be treated for cardiac amyloidosis. We decided to do all the additional testing. We took a piece of that myocardium and the patient had actually TTR amyloidosis and not AL amyloidosis. The worst thing I could have done for that gentleman is to actually give him chemotherapy for his amyloidosis because I was not going to fix it, right? So always biopsy and always try to find the tissue that you're looking for before you actually expose the patients to treatment that they might not need. I think that's a, a, good, a good message for this type of patients. Stuart and Nora, I don't know about you. I don't feel quite so bad about not uh, this I, I, about not understanding all this before this recording because it is it does get really complicated. So I, I think uh, referrals to you to sort out that <laughs> the stuff on that end. But the illness scripts that I'm that I think we can definitely remember. Myeloma. We'll we'll think about the crab symptoms that you you mentioned. Waldenstrom's. They'll have anemia plus neuropathy and maybe the, the hyperviscosity. And then for amyloidosis, it's more of like the cardiomyopathy, neuropathy symptoms uh, that we think of. Okay. And I, I know we wanted to uh, maybe talk a little bit about the hyperviscosity just because it's, I don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever seen it. And I just, uh, if we don't ask you about it, you know, we're going to be kicking ourselves. What, how does that present uh, with Waldenstrom's? Is, and how often is that? Because I, I really don't think I've seen it or maybe I just didn't recognize it. Yeah. So uh, at this time, I think probably about 10% of patients with Waldenstrom's can present with hyperviscosity. I think that range has actually decreased over time. And I think it's because, you know, we tend to detect these patients now a little earlier. Now, the classic presentation of hyperviscosity are recurrent uh, spontaneous nosebleeds. And they're really, really hard to control. Uh, you know, and they are just gushing out nosebleeds out of nowhere. Um, the other finding is these headaches, you know, wakes up the patient very early in the morning. They never go away and it just get worse, gets worse over time. And the last one, uh, classic is, uh, blurred vision that doesn't, co doesn't correct with glasses. Just the patient just is, is blurred vision. Um, these patients tend to have these fundoscopic examinations. And they have all these different changes in the retinal vessels, anywhere from just uh, engorgement and, and tortuosity of the vessels, all the way to sausaging and all the way to ret actual retinal bleeds. And, and once you have seen, you know, either a patient, you know, uh, losing his sight, you know, or, or stroking out because of hyperviscosity, you never forget it. And you take it very, very seriously. So the answer there is to plasmapheresis those patients. You know, if you suspect the patient is having uh, these problems, uh, either a peripheral line or putting a, a central line to plasma this patient, that's the right answer, always. Now, a teaching point here is that because the blood is very viscous and very thick, uh, the, the, you know, you, you tend to bring more fluid into the, into, the, into the intravascular volume, and these patients actually could be artifactually more anemic. 
than the usual. So you can see a hemoglobin of 7 and an IgM of 7,000, and the patient's having all these hyperviscosity sim symptoms, and you might feel that you want to transfuse these patients before you fear risk them. That is not the right way to go. You need to fear risk them first, and don't be surprised if the hemoglobin actually goes up about a point or, or point and a half just by, by plasma in these patients, and then the patient might not even need to be transfused. The point is, if you transfuse a patient with hyperviscosity, you actually make them more viscous, and you can actually you know, make the, the symptoms worse in that specific scenario. Is there is there a specific level of IgM at which you should be particularly suspicious for hyperviscosity? Yeah, so we actually did a study, 800 people um, with Waldenstrom's, and we followed them there with their IgMs. Uh, with an IgM below 3,000, almost nobody had hyperviscosity. So I would say the, the hyperviscosity problem starts about 3,000 milligrams per deciliter. Now, the risk of hyperviscosity between three and 4,000 was about 2-3%. Between four and 5,000 was about 5-6%. to 6 And between five and 6,000, about 10-12%. to 12 over 6,000 is when really went up to about 50 to 60% of the patients actually had hyperviscosity symptoms. So as you can see, it's not a linear distribution. It's more like a logarithmic distribution of the, of the risk of hyperviscosity based on the IgM. So anybody over 3,000 can have hyperviscosity, but anybody over 6,000 more likely will have a hyperviscosity. I think we're going to have to get take-home points. I think we could keep going uh, for another hour or two. Uh, with all the questions that we probably still have, but can you give us maybe if people were just going to remember two or three things from this talk, what would you like them to remember about you know MGUS and then the the three myeloma amyloid Waldenstroms that we talked about? I, I think um, having a high degree of suspicion and, and and just keep your eyes open for these type of things is is actually the the, the, the probably the best message that I can provide. Just just think about it. You know, just by thinking about it, then you can potentially do the uh, workup that is that is important. And again, an SPEP uh, could potentially be life-saving, you know, for, for people who might have be having hyperviscosity, for people who may be having hypercalcemia or acute kidney injury, which are, you know, the, the most, the worst case scenarios in here, you know, always have that in mind. And I think running an SPEP is, is um, you know, a low cost, potentially high yield um, scenario. And then they refer to hematology. <laughs> and now we know how to interpret this now too. So can uh, anything that you wanted to plug before we let you go? Um, I think uh, an important aspect of all this is um, we as academics and, and scientists and researchers um, really cannot advance the science without um, the help of our patients. And, and the patients can help in many different ways. They can help by providing samples. They can help by um, participating in clinical trials. So I really, you know, I, I would encourage, you know, not only the physicians taking care of the patients and the patients themselves to think about participating in research so we can advance the science. All right. This was awesome. Thank you so much. We will fade that into the outro and uh, uh, we'll let you get back to your, your family. Um, this was, I, I feel good about all this. And then once I go back and listen to it like two times and mm -hmm. read, read the show notes that Nora makes and everything, uh, I learned this stuff so well. So thank you so much. I know the audience will as well. 
No, my pleasure. Thank you for the invite, Nora. This was great. I'm really this is so this much. is awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad to you know be able to reach out to people from different aspects of of, of what we do, right? And so I, I think this is a, an awesome way to to get the word out. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicioso. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice change knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Nora Toronto, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelia on Twitter. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Garganoff on our website, and Chris the Chu Manju on Facebook. Until next time, I've been the tongue tied Stuart Kent Brigham. <laughs> and I've been Nora Platt Toronto. And a reminder to the audience that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I'd also like to thank Stuart for composing our wonderful theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Thank you and good night. Goodbye, Paul. See you next time. (laughs) 